0: We are in 2nd Corinthians, and we finished the first two chapters last time, which leads us inexorably to the third chapter. Both of Paul's letters to the Corinthians seem to be in response to communication the other way. In other words, he's answering questions. And the tenor of the letter at the beginning seemed to indicate that there was some question about Paul's credentials, seeing as how Paul was always in trouble wherever he went, to the extent that he got stoned, he got beaten, he got thrown out of town, caused riots and so forth. So apparently somebody was saying, are you sure this guy's for real? And so the first part of his letter, he's talking about what it means to him that his life has been so difficult. And he's saying that he counts himself fortunate to have been allowed to carry the gospel, and that he's allowed to suffer for Christ. So we're going to go into chapter 3, and he's going to talk about the new covenant and the new covenant with respect to the Torah. You're going to want to be over in Hebrews 8 as well. So chapter 3, are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? you yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all some translation is written on your hearts or written on our hearts in verse 2 so the gist of the first two chapters was that somebody had cast doubt on Paul's credentials and so he's leading off with do we need letters of recommendation what he's going to say is Nonsense! I don't need letters of recommendation because you are my letter of recommendation. In other words, you received the gospel and you received the Holy Spirit through my ministry, and that is credential enough. So chapter 3 again. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendations to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all and to show that you are a letter from christ delivered by us written not with ink but with the spirit of the living god not on tablets of stone but on tablets of human hearts this is where he's going to launch if you will so verse four such is the confidence that we have through messiah toward god not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us our sufficiency is from god who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant not of the letter but of the spirit for the letter kills but the spirit gives life and for those who are hostile to torah this is going to be one of the places they're going to fetch up the idea that you want to stay away from the torah because the torah which is the letter kills but the spirit gives life what we're going to do is we're going to unpack that probably for most of the rest of the hour so the first thing he says is you are my letter of recommendation. The fact that you have received the Holy Spirit, because remember the whole thing in 1 Corinthians was that the gifts of the Spirit were abroad in the Corinthian church, and members of the church were getting all puffed up because of the gift that they had. So they were lording it over each other. You know, I've got the gift of healing. You only got a gift of X, Y, or Z. So there was considerable hubris going on over the gifts of the Spirit, which was addressed in 1 Corinthians. So the fact that they have the Spirit is sort of established, if you will. So what Paul is saying here is the fact that you've got the Spirit is all of the recommendation I need because you got it through my agency. Not from me, but through my agency. I was the conduit that God used to get the Spirit to you. The Spirit came from God. So now what he's going to do is he's going to talk about the torah and the new covenant what he's saying is the letter of the law which is written on tablets of stone kills but the living spirit brings life and and i completely agree with all that by the way i'm not poo-pooing any of it i just don't think it means what people think it means now i'm going to read a bunch and then we're going to come back and unpack it so now we're down to verse seven now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone For if what is being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Typical Pauline stuff, right? Just tangles your tongue reading it. The last thing I told you last time before we separated is you got to pay attention to the tenses of the verbs. They're critical here. And what he says is, in verse 7, that which is being brought to an end. Not has been brought to an end, being brought to an end, that's critical. And then verse 11 is, if what is being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Now let's go over to Hebrews 8. And by the way, I am one who believes that Paul wrote Hebrews. You don't have to believe it. Nobody knows for sure, but I think he did just because the sentences are just as difficult. So I am going to pick Hebrews 8, starting at verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second one. For he finds fault with them when he says, and then he goes, Behold, the days are coming. That's Jeremiah 31, which he's quoting. And I'm not going to read all that. I mean, we can talk about that if you like, but I'm I'm not going to go through the details of the new covenant. What I'm interested in is the first thing is the first covenant had a fault. And the fault was the people to whom it was given. In verse 8, he finds fault with them when he says... So the problem is not the words of the covenant per se, the problem is the people to whom it was given. So down to verse 13, speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Again, notice the tenses of the sentence. For example, my little laptop here is obsolete. It was obsolete as soon as I bought it, because there's a new one and a better one coming out. That's what obsolete means. Obsolete does not mean done away with or worthless. It simply means that there is a better version available. So virtually everything that any of us owns is obsolete. Certainly your computer is, your phone is. Spent years in the army. And all of the equipment that we used was obsolete because there was new stuff coming through the pipeline. That doesn't mean it's useless. I carried an obsolete pistol for a long time, and I will guarantee you if I had shot anybody with it, he'd have died. There's nothing wrong with a pistol. There was just a new one on the way. Same thing with the covenant here. And notice that he says it is becoming obsolete and growing old and is ready to vanish away. He does not say that it has been done away with. And in my translation back here in Corinthians, you have the same tenses of the verb being used, which is one of the reasons I think Paul wrote both letters. If I had a tape recorder here, I could use a tape recorder to capture what I'm saying, but a tape recorder is obsolete. I am speaking this into a laptop computer, which is also obsolete, but which will faithfully record my words, and I will be able to put them on the internet. You all remember at Sinai, which is where they got the tablets of stone. You all know that the conversation at Sinai was intended to be the consummation of a wedding. So in Exodus 19, God talks to Moses and says, go make this offer to Israel. They will obey my voice. I will be their God they shall be my people and so forth. Moses goes and makes that offer. Israel says, we accept. Moses comes back and says, they accept. He says, fine, have them purify themselves and show up at the base of the mountain on the third day. So what you have there is an offer of betrothal. At that point, Israel is betrothed to God. So what happens on the third day is intended to be the consummation of a marriage. And in the consummation of a marriage, what happens is the husband gives seed to the wife with the intention of passing on new life. So the word of God is seed, and so what is supposed to happen at the third day is God is going to speak his word into the heart of his people. They are going to be his people and his bride from then on, and they're going to go off and do the things that God would have them do. You all know that between the second and the third commandment in the Hebrew, the person changes. What happens is God speaks the first two commandments. Israel says, stop. Moses, you go up to the top of the mountain, find out what he's got to say, bring it back, we'll listen to you, but we can't listen to God anymore or we'll die. That particular conversation happens at the end of the Ten Commandments. Grammatically, it happens between two and three. First couple of commandments. I am the Lord. I did. I, I, and then from there it goes to second person, to third person. Okay, in the Hebrew, but it's not visible in your English Bibles. At that point, tablets of stone became decreed. So God says to Moses, "All right, come on up here, and I will give you tablets of stone on which I will write." this marriage covenant. And tablets of stone are a metaphor for hearts of stone. So the bridegroom, God, tried to put seed into the bride, Israel. Israel said, stop. So what God is saying is, you have a heart of stone. You would not let me write my words on your heart like I wanted to, but my words are so valuable, I'm going to give them to you to carry around but they're going to be written on tablets of stone instead of hearts of flesh to remind you that you have hearts of stone so the whole deal of the new covenant is to take those very same words the torah does not change so to take those very same words and write them on a human heart a heart of flesh instead of being written on tablets of stone And the entire bible is the story of the torah being out of place It was not designed to be written on tablets of stone. It was designed to be written on the human heart, but the human hearts refused, so tablets of stone became the metaphor. Now what Paul is saying here is the Word of God written on tablets of stone becomes deadly because we don't obey it. We all go through life and we don't obey God's Word. We all do it. Everybody from time to time, gets out of step with God. If God's Word were written on your heart like it was designed to be, you would not ever get out of step with God. So you would walk through life having the Word of God written where it's supposed to be written, and you would walk in health and blessing and all of those kinds of things like He intended to have you do. But you don't have them written on your heart. So what you got to do is you got to refer to these rocks over here and every time you're trying to figure out what God wants you to do, you've got to turn over to the rocks and say, eh, what's to say about this? That's suboptimal. That's obsolete. And so what Paul is saying here is that the tablets of stone are not what's designed to have happened. and what Christ has made possible now is that they will be written on your heart, and when that happens, they will bring life like they were intended to. Instead of bringing condemnation, because instead of having them written in your heart, you've got to go over and look at these rocks, and your behavior doesn't match what's written on the rocks, and that brings condemnation. What I'm suggesting to you, he is being encouraging, because he will also say here that the Spirit is your guarantee, and he says the same thing in Ephesians chapter 1, where he says, The Holy Spirit is your guarantee of an inheritance, which you do not have yet. In other words, you have the Spirit, you're on the right path, your lives are being changed, and all of that is through the agency of the Holy Spirit. And what I'm asserting is that the fault of the first covenant is where it's written. That's the assertion I'm making, that the problem with the first covenant, it was written on tablets of stone instead of hearts of flesh. Go to Deuteronomy 10. So Deuteronomy 10, 15. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn, for the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, and the great and the mighty and awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe, and so forth. So the first instruction early in Deuteronomy is you circumcise your heart. And then if you go to Deuteronomy 30, and this is after the blessings and cursings and after the exile, this is a statement of the new covenant in Deuteronomy. And I'm going to pick that up in verse 4. So Deuteronomy 34, if your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes, and the enemies will persecute you. So that's a statement of the new covenant. Deuteronomy 10, before they go into exile, in other words, they're getting ready to go into the land. And the instructions are, you're going into the land. And if you're going to abide in the land, then you need to circumcise your hearts. And then at the end of Deuteronomy, he says, I know you're not going to last, so you're going to go into exile. And after you go into exile, because you didn't circumcise your hearts, at the end of the exile, I'm going to go get you, and I'm going to bring you back, and I will do the circumcision. And the result of that circumcision is you will love the Lord your God with all your heart. So... You circumcise your heart in Deuteronomy 10. After I pull you back out of exile, I will do it for you. And then the circumcision will be complete and it will be proper and the Torah will then be written on your heart. Jeremiah 31 is also after the exile. Because Jeremiah is written as the northern kingdom is being sent into exile. This is the hope after the exile. So now let me get back to Hebrews 8. I will put my laws into their minds, I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They shall not teach each one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. By the way, this and Jeremiah are the only place that New Covenant is mentioned. The rest of it talks about removing a heart of stone, or it talks about circumcising the heart. But the conditions are always the same which is God takes Israel, brings them back to their land, and God then circumcises their heart, removes the heart of stone, writes his law on their heart. I mean, he says it three or four different ways, but it's always essentially, we're going to rectify the problem that we had at Sinai. And the problem we had at Sinai is you wouldn't let me write my law on your heart. That gets rectified in the new covenant. And what I am suggesting is Paul is saying that what the Holy Spirit does is it allows you to begin the process of circumcising your heart so that you will be loving God, following God, doing the things that God wants you to do. Until the sacrifice of Yeshua, there was no sacrifice in Torah for rebellion, except possibly Yom Kippur. It took the sacrifice of Yeshua and the shedding of his blood to atone for the sin of rebellion that all mankind has done. That's how we became mortal. And, by the way, that doesn't fix mortality. Now, the question is, where was the blood shed? The blood was sprinkled, if you will, on the real altar of which the earthly one is a copy, the Holy of Holies in heaven. Now, does the blood of Yeshua cover the sin of David? Does the blood of Yeshua cover the sin of Adam? Does the blood of Yeshua cover your sin? Let me say this very clearly. Let's say that I was uh, going to bring a goat for one of the sins that is covered in the Torah. So say, for example, I stuck my hand into the offering and I took for my own use some money that people had given for God's use. Let's say I did that. Well, what I've done is I have put my hand on the holy thing and I have taken it for my own, there is a sacrifice in Torah for that. So I can bring a sheep or a goat or whatever, I don't remember what it is, off the top of my head, and I replace it plus 20%, and that sin is covered in the Torah, right? Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, well, I didn't do anything this week, but next week I'm going to put my hand into the offering, and I'm going to go out and make a boat payment. And I know I'm going to do that, but I'm going to go ahead and offer my sheep today so that we'll cover that. We can't do that, can we? So Yeshua's sacrifice happened before I was born, much less committed my first sin. So how does the sacrifice of Yeshua cover my sin if my preemptively sacrificing a sheep doesn't cover my sin I'm going to do next week? It is not permissible or not acceptable or not any good for me to do a preemptive sacrifice for sin that I'm going to do next week. Yeshua's sacrifice was done before I was even born, before I'd committed any of my sins. So how does that sacrifice cover my sin that is done after the sacrifice? Because the place where the blood was shed is outside of our time stream, which means that the sacrifice of Yeshua and his blood covers Adam, and it covers the last human being who's going to be born, because it is not in the time stream that we're in. And yes, God did it, but the fact that he did it outside of our time stream is what makes it effective for all sin. So it covers David, it covers Saul, it covers me, it covers you, it covers everybody, and it's the only sacrifice that covers for the sin of rebellion, where you just sin with a high hand. You are able to get atonement covering for that sin because Yeshua's sacrifice is the only one that covers willful sin. He died within time, but he rose to heaven, and he shed his blood on the altar in heaven, of which the earthly one is a copy. Book of Hebrews. Let me give it to you another way. Yom Kippur. The goat is slain in the forecourt. The priest then takes the blood in a bowl, and he goes back into the Holy of Holies, and that's where the blood is sprinkled before the mercy seat Yeshua is killed here which is outside of the place where the blood is going to be sprinkled he is slain at Golgotha but the place where the high priest who he is according to Hebrews, he's a high priest according to the Ur Melchizedek so the priest then takes the blood in this case his own blood and he goes behind the curtain and he sprinkles it seven times on the mercy seat The death of the sacrificial animal occurs outside. The blood is sprinkled inside. And the book of Hebrews says that his blood is sprinkled on the heavenly altar of which the earthly one is a copy. So what I'm saying and what I think Paul is saying based on the tenses in my translation that the old covenant is passing away. It's going on. It is not yet passed away. Just like in Hebrews it says it is becoming obsolete. It is not yet gone. And it will not be gone, at least in my humble estimation, at least until the millennial reign and possibly until the new heaven and the new earth. And that's what Ephesians says, which is, you guys have got an earnest, a marker, a claim check, which is the Holy Spirit. And Paul will say that here in Second Corinthians also. You have a claim check, a marker and what that claim check the Holy Spirit does is assures you that you have a place in the world to come. You have an inheritance that you have not yet received. The blood of Yeshua covers the sins of all humanity, Acts chapter 2. So the sins of those who are trusting in their obedience to the old covenant is in fact covered by the blood of Yeshua. And in fact God has a covenant with those people. That covenant that he has will be replaced by the new covenant. It is not the case The Jews do not understand everything except the blood of Yeshua part. They understand there's going to be a new covenant. They understand that they're going to get their hearts circumcised. They understand that God's going to have to do it. And at that point, what they say is that the evil inclination will be done away with because it has no more purpose. So they understand everything you just said. The only thing they don't understand is this Jesus God. But everything else I've just described, they understand just fine. So let's pick it up now at verse... 4, such is the confidence we have through Messiah toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, our sufficiency is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Verse 7, now if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which is being brought to an end. Being brought to an end. Again, notice the tense of the verb. And that's consistent with the book of Hebrews, which we just went through. Verse eight, will not the ministry of the spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all, because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will that which is permanent have glory. And again, the idea there is the tablets of stone are a temporary measure, and what's going to happen is that those tablets of stone will be written by the same words written on hearts of flesh. The words don't change, only the location where it's written. Verse 12, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Messiah is it taken away. Verse 15, yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So as I read this, is it a process. And you guys got the Holy Spirit and you are engaged in that process and you are moving along in that process. But as I understand, the Old Covenant is being made obsolete, but it is still there. And I will emphasize much more what I said earlier in the day. If you have the Torah written on tablets of stone, as opposed to written on your heart, Every time you take action, you've got to look over here and see what it says, and you've got to compare your actions to what the tablets say, and your actions very often don't match. Mine certainly don't. If, however, the Torah is written on your heart, and the way I would describe it, I cannot go to sleep without brushing my teeth. Last thing I do before I turn off the light is I go brush my teeth, and then turn out the light and go to sleep. I have tried going to sleep without brushing my teeth, and I can't fall asleep. Because brushing my teeth is written on my heart. I'm very serious. My mommy wrote it on my heart as a young child. And I don't have to be told to brush my teeth. I don't have to check anything. I just know that before I can go to sleep and be comfortable, I have to brush my teeth. So with the Torah written on your heart, your behavior is much like brushing your teeth. You you just wouldn't feel comfortable murdering. You just wouldn't feel comfortable committing adultery. You just wouldn't feel comfortable doing all of these things because the Torah is written on your heart and it is completely a part of you now. And you just can't contemplate doing something contrary to it, just like I can't contemplate going to bed without brushing my teeth. That's what Torah written on your heart means. Your will is aligned with what God would have you do in any circumstance. That's what it means. It doesn't mean that, well, everybody is now a school teacher or an auto mechanic because we're all the same. That doesn't mean that at all. You all have your individual personalities. You all have your individual predilections. You all have stuff you want to do. That doesn't change. It's just that the stuff you want to do is not contrary to God's law anymore. And having it written outside, it becomes a source of condemnation because you don't automatically want to do what God would have you do in every circumstance. You have to think about it. You have to go check. And if you don't go check first, you're very likely not to do what's supposed to happen, and you're likely to sin. In which case, the tablets of stone bring condemnation on you because you didn't measure up. And what God tried to do at Sinai, and Israel would not, was the heart circumcision. And Israel said no. Moses, you go find out what he's got to say and bring it back because we can't listen to him. We'll die. And so Moses did because the words of Torah are a blessing. Your life just goes a whole lot better if you don't ever murder anybody. So the Torah is a blessing, and it's something that God wanted to give his bride. So he gave it to his bride even though she insisted that it be written on rocks instead of where it was supposed to be written. But it is such a blessing that God wanted his people to have it and he wanted his people to disseminate it throughout the world so the world would have it, because it's a blessing. But when your behavior doesn't match the standard that is written on those tablets of stone, that is condemnation. You feel guilt, or if you don't feel guilt, then you're on your way to death. Every time we do this, it takes about this long, because you all have grown up in the Sunday church. And the Sunday church comes here and says, you don't want to have anything to do with that old law because it'll kill you. I've heard preachers say that, and that's a misunderstanding.